1: Hi, this is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. It's a podcast about workplace culture, psychology, and life. I'm Bruce Daisley. Now, a few episodes ago, I put out a call saying that I would love to add a bit more interest, a bit more of a spark to the show. I've just... I've got a, a continuing, endless fascination with work, how it impacts us. But I just felt my own perspective was a bit too narrow. So uh, I put that call out. And yeah, I'm just delighted to say that today we're able to uh, to take the next step and, and add more voices. So, uh, so today I'm adding Ellen, Ellen Scott, Ellen C. Scott, you say on your... Which I sounds gloriously American. It sounds very literary. Ellen and I'm adding Matt. Now, you're
0: sometimes described as Matthew. Are you Matthew Cook or Matt Cook? We can go with either. It's Matthew written down, it's Matt spoken. It's complicated. Right. Okay. So let, let's let take a moment to
1: say hello to everyone out here. Ellen, you've been on the podcast before, actually, haven't you? I have. Introduce yourself properly. I probably did a bad job of it last time.
2: No, I'm sure it was fantastic. Um, so I am the deputy digital editor at Stylist. So I basically look after everything that goes on the Stylist.co.uk website. But alongside that, I'm also working on fiction and potentially working on a book about work too. But that's in the proposal stages. So we'll see where that goes.
1: Okay, I like it. Because you've got a substack going there and we'll put a link to that every week. But you've got a substack. What's your substack called?
2: It's called Working on Purpose newsletter because working on purpose has been taken
1: right okay and in fact it was your workings your writings initially for metro and then your writings for Stylist where i saw your stuff you were writing about quiet quitting in fact i think when i first contacted you you were in the middle of something of a twitter storm that people were angry about just anyone having an opinion on quiet quitting actually people the the quiet quitters were angry with you weren't they right
2: Everyone was angry. Um, so I was at Metro for about seven and a half years and doing a lot of different writing about sex, relationships, but also a lot on work. Uh, picked up Quiet Quitting. We put it as a like, Twitter thread and it got picked up everywhere um, and went a lot bigger than anticipated. But I was getting death threats. I was being accused of like, you're a bootlicker, you love capitalism, you hate people, just onslaught, I was at someone's wedding and I would just go to the toilet and check my phone and it would be like a hundred more messages right. and people being like, you should die. And I was like, this is very extreme. I didn't make up quiet quitting. I just wrote about it, but they were so
1: And they were intense. they were upset because look, doing the appropriate amount of work is anyone's right. Yeah, is that right?
2: Exactly. that. And I was surprised because I thought that anger would be from like bosses yeah, being yeah. like, lazy millennials. But it was much more like how dare you call it quitting when you're just doing your work? And I'm like, you know what, that's fair enough. Unfortunately, I didn't come up with a name, so I can't correct that. But that's what the real right. anger was.
1: Right. Because when, when you told me that, I sort of imagined, you know, when you if you live in London, you see all those people holding up anti-ULES signs at the moment, and angry 4 by 4 drivers are tooting. And so I, I presumed, it, presumed it was going to be that contingent, sort of saying, get to your desk and start working. And like, interesting, it was the other side. Tell me, though, can you rank these things side by side? So you wrote about sex, you wrote about relationships, you wrote about work. It seems like the work got people more het up, no? Did you ever get angry messages about the other stuff?
2: I would say equal. Also, the other thing that has got the most hate of all was when I went on Good Morning Britain and talked about clapping. Um, That is the worst hate I've ever got. I will never talk about clapping ever again because I regret it so much. And that got a lot of... Celebrities, footballers, randomly, were really upset about the clapping thing. So work, sex, everything, nothing is as controversial as clapping.
1: Because you've still got the clapping thing pinned to your Twitter. And actually, the the articulation you make of your point about clapping in the post is really lucid, it's really clear, but... It just didn't
2: come across that way (laughs) (laughs) on GMB, because they just ran it with the thing underneath saying, C. Scott wants to ban clapping. I don't want to ban clapping, right. but that's how it got sold. And it keeps coming back because when... Um, Does it really
1: keep coming back?
2: Because of Clap for Carers okay. during the pandemic, it came back up then. Someone shared it on TikTok without context. And then it was, oh my God, she hates the NHS as well. I was like, oh, this, like, right. predicted that that would happen. But yeah. yes, any hate I get is never going to be as bad as clapping.
0: Right. <laughs> Matt, nice to, nice to have you here. Yeah, thank you. I, I haven't yet... Had any death threats for anything I've done, but it feels like a bar that I need to reach, perhaps.
1: And so, talk me through you and what you do. You you work. You're a founder of your own company that works in sort of workplace culture.
0: Yeah, I'm founder of a culture company called The Shift, and we help teams reach their potential. And I just bloody love people. My background was strategy, um, which is, I guess, more observing people, and then I realised actually what I really enjoyed were the people in the building and the company that I was working with. So then moved internally to help people and create cultures there. And the thread basically throughout all of my life has just been a fascination with people. Uh, If your story started with clapping and death threats, mine is almost the care bear opposite. Mine started as a teenager holding whimsical embarrassing now signs written in crayons with positive lovely messages to people on the underground and my handwriting eventually got better the messages got less cringy but it was all about connection and positivity and I've been still doing that for the last 10 plus years and it's yeah it, it made me realize there was this thread of connection and people and how I bring that through I guess professionally is culturally how do I affect the systems that we're working in, in order to try and help people flourish and have more joy in their life. What's on the signs? Uh, The signs have varied. I did a bit of A-B testing a couple of years ago. Uh, It started with, uh, just said, you are beautiful. And then this was pre-pandemic, as you can tell, there was a commute that happened. 7 a.m., No one needs me smiling with crayons and a sign that says you are beautiful. So took that on board, changed the sign to have a lovely day. And the messages have changed. There's the world is better with you in it. Yeah, varying messages kind of hastily scrawled in crayons.
1: Are they hastily scrawled? You don't don't prepare them? You haven't changed the... You
0: have already caught me lying. They are painstakingly prepared because my handwriting typically is like a spider. So actually, yeah, they are lovingly prepared, is perhaps a better way to put it, if I write them down.
1: And so this obsession with people, you used to work at a sort of media agency, creative agency, and now you've set up your own thing.
0: What's that? Yeah, so worked at a creative agency, wonderful agency, joined when there were 10 people in kind of one room in Soho, felt very fortunate that... I could basically do little bits of everything. I studied philosophy, which uh, certainly at the time doesn't seem like it leads to anything in particular, but I loved it just because it was expansive, it um, helped me think in different ways. But certainly coming into an agency, a startup, where they're like, oh, you can do a little bit of Photoshop, oh, you can do a little bit of coding, just meant that I got to try lots of different things, fell in love with strategy, fell in love with people, moved internally and then helped work on their culture won a couple of juicy awards, and then decided I want to spread my wings and start working with other companies out there. Good work. And so you've set that, that up? Yeah, a couple of years ago, I uh, set that up with a, my business partner who I met years ago because he was originally brought in to train me like six years ago. And we kept just meeting up and I kept thinking, I don't think we're paying him anymore. <laughs> but he keeps reaching out to me, so I'm not going to say no. And then eventually realized that he knew. And that clearly, he'd uh, taken the shine and enjoyed my company.
1: Love it. So, so my objective really was um, I, I, I obsessed with work, obsessed with workplace culture, but along the way, I became a boss. And there's a strange thing about being a boss that you, your perspective's not quite 100% there, you know, even if you think you're empathetic. So, the intention of trying to broaden these things today is, and, and going forwards is that we're just going to have a far more interesting perspective and, and hopefully some degree of. Of of difference of opinion and and uh, and disagreement along the way. So normally, I think we're going to try and have an interview and then discussion about main themes. This week, I thought we'd kick us off, all bringing a, a sort of um, a show and tell. We'd all bring something along, thinking about themes of the world of work and and have a discussion about those things. It's really interesting, actually, because probably the biggest news story the week, the story of the week, is a workplace culture thing. It's that. It's that spanish football guy mm. kissing that woman it's that story that won't go away but it is fully squarely a workplace culture story yeah. it's it's right at the heart of, of themes of gender of themes of uh, our
0: roles in life and it's just a story that won't go away so um and alongside manchester united kind of at a similar time right. it just feels like a double whammy emphasizing the toxic cultures
1: yeah, I've got a couple of Spanish friends actually, and they that that football one they're really embarrassed by because it, it just mm-hmm. won't go away, and it seems to be really sort of planting a flag in a generational perspective that I think a lot of us thought had been left in the past. So
2: his mum's not helping either.
1: Really? Oh, yeah. I haven't seen that. Oh,
2: his mum said she's going on a hunger strike. Yeah, in protest in a church. Um, and so that the story, as you're saying, just keeps going on because of stuff like that. Wow. It's Just very odd
0: I was quite glad to see how many people understandably and players had obviously come out and said well we're not playing until you step down and also the I'm not a football fan so I'm going to let myself down here but he'd also backed one of the coaches who many players had said was creating a toxic environment and given him another season so we're not going to dwell on that because I suspect by the time this goes
1: out there'll be more on that but look so we've all brought along something each um Ellen, do you want to kick us off?
2: Yes. So a piece that I read a couple of weeks back but have been discussing with my friends and colleagues nonstop, it's about the rise of the millennial, and I'll do an awkward American accent, momager rather than momager. Um, And it's basically about how for so many millennial women going into managerial roles – the kind of emotional boundaries with the people that are working for them and within their team get so blurred and they take on this weird kind of parental emotional therapisty role. And it's really, it's difficult because obviously that's going to lead to burnout and all kinds of difficult issues, but it's something that I've definitely been guilty of. In my last job I had team members that literally referred to me as mum, So that's, and looking back, I'm like, that's a terrible thing Mm -hmm. to have been allowing and to have been doing. And also, it just meant I felt like I was on call all the time and felt like I had to help everyone with everything they were going through out of work. It's not healthy, but I can see exactly where it comes from because it's just you want your team to be doing well emotionally. Mm. You care, and that's a great thing, but it can go very wrong very quickly.
1: It strikes me as it's one of those boundaries that probably when you're in the moment doing it, there are times when it feels like it's creating a really nice team environment. Yeah. This is benign. There's nothing wrong with it. But by extrapolating it, I can imagine that it ends up um, sort of stereotyping the person who does it as a certain sort of manager. They're great at managing the soft stuff, but they're not strategic. It's, it's yeah. potentially a way to frame someone with... A quite traditional gender role, actually, and and to some extent could end up undermining them. Am I I reading that wrong?
2: No, 100%. And also something that a lot of my friends who are kind of going into manager roles now are saying is, you know, I get on really well with my team, but then they think they can take the piss, essentially. So they'll say, you know, they've requested holiday when they really can't. I don't know how to say no, because they expect me to just be like, yeah, sure, whatever, like do whatever you want. And that's really difficult to then kind of reassert professionalism, boundaries, um, if you need to be quite assertive and go, no, this is what I need from you. It's quite difficult to go back once you've got really emotionally invested. Mm-hmm.
0: And I think also, Bruce, to your point, the the gendered language around yeah. it is particularly interesting in a negative way. Because on on the one hand, the millennials, our generation, have a broader understanding and awareness around mental health, burnout. They've got a larger vocabulary to be able to engage in those conversations with their teams, which is great. And I'm curious in terms of this is a trend, how much of that is being exhibited by male managers mm. and female managers and how much, because a, a journalists come up with a great, catchy name mummager is now being gendered or yeah. perhaps there is it is happening more with women
2: because i haven't heard of dad edges yeah. <laughs> not it's <as> catchy. <laughs> catchy but i also feel like i haven't seen that mm. pattern i don't know why that would be but it's it's really interesting and it is worrying that that's kind of the way it's being framed and that that might be the automatic assumption of I have a female millennial manager. They're going to be like a momager. They're going to be soft and loving and caring. And they're going to be like a parent. That is, is some strange.
1: of this, because you're a journalist in this space. And there's so many of the big stories that we've seen that are about the experience of work over the last mm-hmm. year, especially, that have almost taken these snappy little sobriquets and then said, is there a story attached to it? And to some extent, it's... It's thinking of, like, how could you package this for TikTok? How could you package this for an article? And then trying to attach some substance around it. Is there, is there something going on there? When you see something, bang, lands on TikTok, we need to write about that.
2: Yes, and, yeah. <laughs> 100%. Yeah. Because I think from my experience, I saw how well Quiet Quitting did. So then the other day I saw something about Loud Labourers, and I wrote about that because I'm like, it's not a new phenomenon, but because it has that name... I know people are going to click into it, and they always do. Like There was something a few weeks back about lazy girl jobs, which is another weird trend. Lazy girl jobs aren't a thing, but (laughs) they've been made a thing because it's got a catchy name, and they do really well for traffic, so it's going to continue, you know, we're going to keep doing it.
1: There's an art to it, isn't there, though? Like, if you've got something that you've got a nub of an idea, attaching a... Catchy phrase to it. Sometimes we underestimate how important that is.
2: One hundred percent. Because I have challenged myself many times. Like, can I come up with a new work trend? And it just—I've come up with dating terms before, but not work trends.
1: What were your dating terms?
2: Dating terms. I did. What was it? Stashing. Um, which got picked up. That's a good sounding one. You've got to give us the definition. Stashing is basically when um, you're dating someone and they're not telling anyone in their lives about you. So they're like stashing you away. But that got picked up and I think it's ended up in like not a physical dictionary, but a lot of online dictionaries. So I think we knew...
1: Did you make urban dictionaries? I was just about to say the... the, Did you? Come on! (laughs) (laughs) Um,
2: But that... The dating trend thing did so well for a really long time. Now it's work trends. But it's the same formula. It's just coming up with a catchy name for something that everyone can kind of relate to.
0: I I often wonder as well when I see things like Quiet Quitting, Mm -hmm. Mummager, my instant reaction is, oh, there's something going on here. And then I have to pause and slow down and think, who's invented this and what what are they trying to sell me? Is this a consultancy who are trying to push a new product? Is this a journalist...? And it's quite difficult to to push through that sometimes.
2: 100%. And I think that knowing the mechanisms of it is helpful to help you look past it a little bit. Because also, I get so many press releases that are dating terms or work terms. And I'm just like, that's nonsense. You have just made that up. It's not even catchy, not covering it.
0: Well, I'm glad we've got you to decode the trends and figure out which are real. Yeah, but it's it's like um it's
1: really reductive storytelling. Mm-hmm. I I remember watching uh, someone talk about American elections and then the only American elections now are single word s- slogans. Yep. And effectively you're either you either represent change or you represent st- some Hope. other tradition, yes. or absolutely, and, and it's it's gone from being a catchphrase to a single word, and it's trying to encapsulate a story that you can understand from that. It, and it just you just realise actually we're also time pressed. You either need a degree of intrigue in that phrase, or some something that's going to ignite you. Oh right, fascinating. The, right.
0: the language can be really useful. On the flip side, though, so it can help us frame when we're seeing things with the companies we're working with. Yeah you can kind of capture an emotion or a vibe that hasn't necessarily been articulated, 100%. which is really interesting because you can then start to give a voice to people to explain what it is that we're seeing.
2: Well, it's even, there's a real trend overall for, like, therapy speak filtering into real life. And I think that the word boundaries has been such a good example of that. Like, a few years ago, no one was using the term boundaries. but and then now, Jonah
0: Hill comes out using yeah. it, swinging. <laughs>
2: <am> <laughs> ignoring that incredibly awkward, weird story. But... Now we're actually able to go, okay, this work situation is making me uncomfortable because the boundary is unclear, or because I need to reassert boundaries between work and life. So you're right, it, it enables you to put it into words and communicate and be able to go, ah, that is what I'm experiencing, and now I can do something about it.
1: Yeah there's a such an art to it though right because that that boundaries thing is a really helpful framework actually to to help you sort of interpret the things that are going wrong in your own life so okay so we'll, we'll, we'll keep you looking out for these uh with these new phrases that's great matt you brought something along too
0: yeah i feel this follows on really nicely because my discussion topic is essentially about every week, perhaps even every day, coming across a new article, a piece of research, which claims to have found the ideal number of days to work in the office. So there's a report from McKinsey, which has talked about having studied 4,000 of their teams across the globe. 50% is the ideal amount in the office. What did you think when you saw that? I mean, it feels a bit convenient. I'm not saying they didn't do the data, but bang in the middle. It's neither all the way and it's neither all the way the other way. So yeah, my take on it is it's still interesting to read, but I don't think it's a blanket approach. And one of the things that frustrates me is trying to take a one size fits all and articles and companies talking about it as if this is the way. And it feels like we had just broken free of the monoculture that had gripped businesses for the last hundred years, the industrial era. Here's how you run a company, hierarchy structure. You can just take that, put it in any organization. And it feels like with the pandemic, we started to see, oh, culture actually matters. But now we're kind of going back again and saying, mm-hmm. but here's the best culture. And as I mentioned, not a sports fan. This analogy might fall down, but it feels like someone's come out with a piece of research that says, We've found the perfect strategy for team sport. Mm. Whether it's I was about to use tennis, that's not a team sport. Whether it's doubles, doubles, tennis <laughs> doubles. Whether it's hockey, whether it's netball. This is the strategy, and it. I just find it quite frustrating, mm. and um, especially with what we see and what we try and encourage is designing culture first and what's right for you. So there was another report which came out and said, sorry, work from home. Fanatics, but this piece of research says that your productivity is lower. And it just makes me question what were the companies they researched? Did those companies design a remote first culture? And it looked like from the article they had just measured pre pandemic and post pandemic. And obviously their culture might have taken a hit yeah. and the productivity might have taken a hit because they didn't design intentionally.
1: Yeah, because I think I know both those pieces. I'll, I'll link to them in the notes. Because the first piece, I I shared the same issues, like the, the McKinsey piece, sort of 50% of your time in the office. And it was McKinsey partners. and they, they, These are really senior people and they learn earn a, a significant amount of cash. And I've got no doubt amongst those people, there are senior leaders who want everyone back in the office. And so, you know, they're, they're balancing all those things. But I also know that if your boss wants everyone back in the office, there's a certain sort of person who will pander to their boss's whims a little bit because you just know you're in a McKinsey you're in a professional job your boss wants everyone into the office even though it makes your life infinitely more complicated you'll kind of show a bit of face and you know that presenteeism there the second one um, I think I know that piece and it was in The Economist a couple of weeks ago and it was specifically saying there was a piece of work by Nick Bloom who's like this guy who's like the only guy anyone ever quotes about um, about remote working that saying initially that productivity at home was slightly higher. The latest piece says that productivity is really marginally lower. But the critical thing I would say about that is that I think they say that productivity is about 5% lower. But the trade-off if people are working from home and enjoying it is their life is so fundamentally better that if they've got all these complexities in their life, they're not having to do a commute all these times, they feel like they're no longer failing at everything. And they've got... Then trading off and only losing 5% productivity
0: seems like a really big win, I think. It wasn't even, if it's the same one, it wasn't even 5% lost. It was over the day, they're more productive, but per hour, they're less. Right. But that's because they're choosing to spread the day out a bit longer because they no longer have to cram it all into the working hour. Sorry, the working day of 9 to 5 because I've commuted. So it was interesting. It was They're working longer, therefore productivity is down because per hour it must be lower because it's spread across. Right. But, yeah, to your point, it, it it really depends if productivity is the only thing you're chasing yeah. and what you're trying to incentivise and bonus for. What's your working setup, Helen?
2: So I'm two days in the office and the rest from home.
0: You love your office days, don't you? I,
2: I enjoy my office days, but I would say that the kind of work that I do is completely different on the different days. Okay, I know that when I'm in the office on Tuesdays and Thursdays, I'm not going to get any kind of deep work done. I'm not really going to do much writing or big editing jobs. But what I will do is ideas generation because I'm going to be chatting with people and talking about what we're thinking about and feeling and all of that. So it's just distinct purposes for the different types and i need both of those days right. to be able to do my job well and does that d-
1: depend because I, I i remember sort of i think i once attended the guardian leads meeting like where all of the journalists pitched the stories that, of what they wanted to go in the paper that day and it was in the office era and it was quite a buzzy environment it was really fascinating to watch it as a as a, an observer um, does that is that the sort of thing that would happen in your office days, people pitching stories or...?
2: We do it both. So we have every morning, we'll have our morning meeting and we'll do it on Teams or in okay. person. Um, but also, yeah, I think the difference is that in, the, in office days, it's not just strictly held to one meeting or anything. It's just constant because we're talking the whole time or someone will just go, oh, did you see this? Blah, blah, blah. So it's a lot easier to just bounce ideas off each other without yeah, without like a prompt. Whereas I think from home, you are just kind of working on your own, essentially, right. unless there's a specific meeting or like a brainstorming session.
0: Right. And that social connection you mentioned of, oh, you know, we've seen this is is so valuable. Mm-hmm. And I think often going back to the, the articles where it's kind of just honing in on one thing around productivity. And then it b- might not be measuring or correlating with burnout, yeah. with other things. It's like productivity is lower per hour, but perhaps because of, social connection or of other things that people are burning out less that actually in general they are able to spend more hours working healthier happier longer
2: i think in general the measures of productivity aren't relevant for a lot of jobs in general because same with my example if you actually looked at productivity in terms of like words typed (laughs) on a tuesday and thursday it's going to be so much lower when Mm. i'm in the office but my work won't be as good without those ideas generating days so it's it seems really reductive to just go like productive productivity based on time spent or Task, tick it off. It just doesn't work that way. Especially
1: because there was some other thing this week that I saw that um that suggested by Nick Bloom again, and it suggested really interesting analysis. It was um it was looking at the amount of time that people spent in different configurations of work mm. um and how much of their time they were spending in meetings. And the people who were working fully hybrid were spending fifty percent of their week, so 20 hours a week on meetings. If you're fully remote, it was about third a third of your week, and if you're fully in the office, it was a third of your week. But we've created this now. If you're obsessed with productivity, the first thing you'd say is, "Okay, that is not more. That is not being more productive." Um, and yet, the way we measure productivity is so partial and so based our own prejudices i i was chatting to someone last week i was trying to to meet someone and they were like i can't leave yet because my boss is sitting at his desk so i'm just surfing through the daily mail it's like okay right okay so we're back to that version of productivity that which is effectively presenteeism You've got
0: to get them onto the stylist next time that's right. That was his main issue. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> But um, it just, it, it's really interesting. Like No one is really as obsessed with productivity as they claim
1: to be obsessed with productiv- productivity. It's just they want their version of work to be played out normally based on their own prejudices and instincts is my, my perspective. Now, you work with other companies, Matt. Yeah. Uh, what are you seeing? Are you seeing some companies are getting this right? Some companies are, are not. I mean, not just
0: from the companies you directly work with, because I wouldn't want you to reveal that, but from other companies you chat to. Yeah. One of the things that often comes up when we're talking is the maker-manager schedule, which can just be a really useful framing for people to start to look at how they're trying to integrate and connect across teams. So in theory, or in general, the maker-manager schedule basically talks about there being two different types of schedules for someone's day. Your manager schedule is filled with half-hour meetings where you're connecting, getting updates, understanding what's happening from a project overview perspective. So your ideal day would be half-hour meeting, half-hour meeting, half-hour break or hour working, half-hour meeting. The other side is what they call the maker schedule, and this is basically uninterrupted hours of deep work time. This might be strategists, creatives, coders, people that are having to produce or deliver something. And one of the issues is when you then try and put those two schedules together, the manager needs the update from the person that's making, but the maker hasn't done the work yet because they keep having meetings. Now, that's horrendously reductive. Obviously, managers are also practitioners and having to do work as well. But it can be exacerbated, especially with um, remote work, where... You have asynchronous kind of Teams messages interrupting. You then have half-hour check-ins. There's no consistency around how do we communicate and how do we want to update information. Maybe I actually just need you to update this spreadsheet with the status and I didn't really need to message you or interrupt you. So we see, we're fortunate, I guess, that people that come to us have, they're already bought into a bit of the Kool-Aid that they want to make change to a certain extent. So they're really trying and experimenting with different ways of working, of different ways of communicating. But generally, one of the first things that we always go back to as a first principle is designing for your culture. What are the behaviors you're trying to incentivize? What are the values? And how do you then design working practices around that? We often talk about kind of the office just being another tool, so it's great at some things. It's really good for collaboration. It's really good for social connection. But it's not as good for other things. You know, Teams is a tool. Phone calls are a tool. So how do you use the tools in your arsenal to achieve what you need to achieve? Right. And and tell me this then,
1: because you, um, I think I saw something that you'd post on LinkedIn about the importance of trying to create team spirit or get-togethers or team yeah. events. What's what's your philosophy when it comes to that? Are, are those team events a big part of how firms
0: work with you? Yeah. Um, col- I think you might have seen the thing around collective effervescence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just such a wonderful word. It's just basically about awe, creating and finding moments of awe. And collective effervescence describes that feeling at a gig, at a Reading Festival, where you're surrounded by people jubilantly focused on the same thing you are but it can also be achieved through social gatherings Um, and those are often done better in person if it's possible so finding moments to create those rituals where you come together essentially establishing kind of traditions for your company we get together around these types of moments to celebrate to connect and generally those are better in person I mean, we've done the pub quizzes over the pandemic. They're okay. Appalling. But, They're appalling. But no? it's okay when I win. Right, They're okay. appalling when I but, lose. But a Zoom quiz. The Zoom quizzes. We've done speed dating where you right. connect people through breakouts. But we're hardwired for social connection. Right. Um, I don't think that means that, therefore, we should be defaulting all the time to in-person. But certainly for social connection, nothing really beats right. it.
1: It's interesting, isn't it? Because I've, I've witnessed groups of people who say, I don't want to go to social things with my, with my company. And it's like a really interesting one because you, my instinct is good teams often have a good sense of connection between them. But if someone resolutely doesn't want to do something social, even in work hours, it, it poses really big questions about how you build a team dynamic.
0: Yeah, I think that comes back to culture and what you're asking of people. you know, We talked about uh, quiet quitting, which is essentially asking people to do discretionary effort, which is we want you to do more than we're paying you for. And to a certain extent, socializing can be seen as that. I think for many people, myself included, some of the best friendships and times I've had have been facilitated through work, but that isn't going to be the case for yeah. everyone. Um, so I think thinking around... How are we creating inclusive social moments and connection? Speaking to people and finding out what do they want from work. But then ultimately, you can't design a culture that is accessible for everyone. You kind of do have to choose what do we want to create. And I think what we saw with the pandemic was quite a brutal realization that we can't cater to everyone's needs. Suddenly, when we were all forced to go and work from home... And then we were trying to figure out, okay, are we hybrid? What are we doing? And suddenly you do an employee survey and you have every single option across the board, someone wants something different. And it is just impossible, unfortunately, to facilitate that. The issue was that because it was never designed intentionally, you're then having to essentially take away from people that are already established if you then change. right?
1: Along the way, Ellen, you mentioned... Uh, ideas generation, Mm -hmm. and I was just interested, you wrote something this week about AI and you don't necessarily think it's a straight line between AI coming in and it transforming our jobs. I just wonder, in that ideas generation area, have creative teams that you've worked in experimented with AI?
2: No, not at all. Right. But I think in journalism in general, it's really spoken about as a scary thing okay. because companies are saying, well, we just won't hire a reporter because we'll get AI to do it. So it is is—it is a scary thing for journalists, for sure. I think that's where that kind of idea has come from, is the fear.
1: right?
2: Um, and actually thinking, I don't personally think that it will necessarily be a terrible thing for us all, but at the moment with the current like bosses that we have, it's not going to be good news, right. especially for journalists.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I met someone who said she works in a retail store mm. and she said she'd, she works in sort of the marketing and, and they create all the content. And she said she'd told her team that they had to use AI on every single project before they brought the work to her. So they needed to, if they were designing a... Um, a buyer's guide for curtains. See what AI did first. Use it as a first draft. Because she was hoping that by just using it every day, it was going to become such a big part of like their working routines. And I was just really intrigued by that. You know, like sometimes you see... um, You might not see it as much, but like if you see sort of kids' toys or gimmicks or things that have integrated a new form of technology really quickly, I always find it magical. I'm like, wow! I never even knew that existed. And like this gimmicky toy has got it in and i love people who are just trying to experiment with things really quickly and that strikes me as like a big opportunity for ai right now that to say to an organization look we're just going to use it all the time yeah we're probably going to need an extra 10 percent of people but we think we, we can make this work more effectively and what you've described is exactly my experience of every other office i've ever been in where they're just too busy to experiment with
2: things exactly like that. i think if we did view it as wow this is a really fun cool thing we can try then it's fantastic but the issue is that a lot of companies and people are going well this is just a replacement for people right. yeah and that's obviously not gonna produce the best art or work um but it also puts people out of jobs mm. so that's the downside but if we did view it more as this is an additive thing that we can play with and do cool things with amazing
0: we, mm. we use it to beat the blank sheet. You know, yeah. the dread yeah, yeah, blank yeah. piece of paper when you're sitting down, trying to get started. Uh, it can just be really useful to beat that initial inertia. Just chuck something into it and just see what comes back. It might be interesting, it might not be, but it starts to get those juices yeah. flowing. We're working with a company at the moment to help redesign their performance management framework. And one way to start to get them thinking around behaviors rather than tasks was to just encourage them. What are your current responsibilities put it into chat gpt ask it to reframe it as behaviors and just kind of beat that initial yeah. blank mm-hmm. piece of paper But it's not going to come out with you know something that's a- absolutely exceptional but f- it starts to get them thinking yeah it's kind of like that woman's buyer's guide for curtains right it's like
1: you know it's probably gonna take you four hours to come up with the first draft come up with it and there and then mm-hmm. you can start playing around with it yeah interesting my my article was um, about WeWork. Actually, I don't know if you saw this thing last week that WeWork there's a specific phrase for it. It's, um, they said that they d- they didn't have enough money to deal with their liabilities for the, the going quarter. I forget what the phrase is. It's like we're a going concern or something. But um, WeWork said that effectively they're on the verge of going bankrupt. As a result, their stock collapsed. Um, and I, I'm, number one, I feel for anyone who works at WeWork, because if there's anyone who's... Been through all the ups and downs of that organisation. I, I I went to present at WeWork one time, and and albeit before we started recording, we said it's you know a bit cult like the whole thing, but you feel for the people in the cult are the victims of it, not necessarily the the people responsible. But um, just I, I I was just really intrigued because. WeWork has had an outsize effect on the way offices look, the way that we work, the, the, the way that we consider the boundaries between our home life and our real life. Have, have either of you worked in a WeWork?
2: I have for when I've been doing like interviews. I've booked a WeWork desk, got changed there, gone to the interview, come back and done the rest of my work there. And it's been great. I've enjoyed it. But yeah, that's
0: you, about it. You booked a room for the day, yeah, effectively. And you were based there, weren't yeah, you? Yeah, we were based there for a couple of years, um, pre-pandemic and then also after the pandemic. And what, the thing I found strange from a cult perspective is every every member of staff having to wear the T-shirt that says, Do What You Love. Like nothing feels more culty than mm-hmm. forcing someone to wear a... And this is coming from someone who holds positive signs with crayons. Nothing's more culty <laughs> than forcing someone to have to hold that sign and a positive message. The thing I heard about
1: a lot of the time is that, and you might know this then, that organisations who were in work, WeWork, their culture sort of became this amorphous wework worky culture where people mixed with people from other firms and you'd go into the beer area or the coffee area. and And so... I guess if you're thinking specifically about your own company's culture, that kind of gets lost to just being a generic, we-worky culture.
0: Was that your experience? Yeah, there's a term called psychogeography, which describes the impact of a physical space on you mentally. And I think that before the pandemic, we maybe all took that for granted and didn't realise how much of our cultures were essentially based around not only the physical location, but the physical layouts of the office and how that manifested and the art. So certainly I think WeWork had a huge impact on that because the geography and the physical location was the same depending on the different companies, and you all had the same bar you could go to. So you had to really establish quite a strong culture, and certainly our experience was that WeWork diminished the culture and changed it. right. Did
2: you mingle with other people or like other teams at WeWork? Did that happen much?
0: You'd you'd nod to them (laughs) when you were lining up for the free beer. But not really. You'd occasionally Mm. talk to them. Um, But certainly just not being able to design it in your own way has a huge impact. So we moved from a Soho townhouse, which felt so eclectic and so creative, to something that was more corporate, that you couldn't really put a stamp on, that you couldn't really lay out the way you wanted. Well, you can't create too much noise here. Sonos system has to be like that. So, yeah, it it was interesting in noting how much impact a physical location can have, which is particularly interesting given that we're also talking about working from home and how do you create a culture When you have disparate people in lots of different locations, some are working, hopefully not still, but many are working from bedrooms from unideal locations, and you're trying to establish a culture across a company through Teams, through Slack, it's particularly difficult. Right. I, I
1: remember witnessing, it was like a big corporate, like a Unilever or someone, and they said, the expectations of people were hiring are such that they want something a bit more buzzy like a WeWork. And so they'd taken flaws in WeWorks. So I guess, you know, you'd gone from something that was more gnarly and creative and you'd gone to something that was just a generic WeWorky thing, but it worked on the other Mm -hmm. side as well. If people were in this, this very sort of professional environment, probably a little bit still formal attire, they'd there'd been a pull towards a WeWorky worky style culture. So, just, I mean, you, you know, like we went, we went through an era where everything looked like WeWork-style coffee shops and the, the, the whole aesthetic was that. But it's just interesting how
0: that has had a, an outsized impact, I think, on the way work looks. Yeah, and to your point around WeWork's culture, they went to something that maybe was more creative, but it was WeWork's culture. And I'm curious to see of those companies, how many managed to maintain or at least grow their own company culture or whether, as you were saying, it essentially became WeWork's culture. Yeah.
1: One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes.
0: Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt.
1: Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health
2: So I've got one more thing to chat about, which is that I've seen all over on TikTok and articles, um, the concept of managing up, which is basically managing your manager. So getting to know how to handle your manager best, knowing when they're in a good mood or a bad mood and being really strategic with how you handle them. And I'm like, that makes sense. But it's so much work, Mm. like on top of your actual job, to have to be like cognizant of all these you know, the specific niches of your manager and how to avoid upsetting them or pissing them off. just seems like a lot of effort.
1: It's basically owning responsibility for the character flaws of your boss, right? Um, Understanding your boss's relationship with their mum and their boss's
0: relationship with with bad feedback. It's really hard. I'm going to come in with a counterpoint here. I think managers get such a hard time that, especially when they're getting pushed and crunched from both ends. They've got to manage a team. They've possibly not been given enough training or support. They've also got to do the job and deliver. Uh, so, yeah, I have a, quite a lot of sympathy for managers.
2: I mean, as a manager, me too. <laughs> but I feel like I would actually be a bit offended if someone was like, yeah, I'm managing up. I'm managing Ellen. It's like, I don't need to be managed up. I'm doing fine. I don't need you to be like tiptoeing around my feelings or like working out. When I'm grumpy, like that feels weird.
1: Doesn't this, and your mummager one, Mm. go to the heart of managers aren't really given a lot of training. And so, you know, effectively you're dealing with the... You know, your, your manager at some point, we all believe that our manager is somehow earning a massive amount more than us, has got more responsibility. Mm-hmm. The worst thing is, we also think that our manager knows loads of secrets that we can't wait. I remember the first time I got promoted to be a manager, and you think, Someone's going to tell me all the secrets, yep. and you realise I don't really know anything more than I knew before. Um, it's like you know, it's it sort of you presume far more knowledge that's actually there, and it's just an intriguing thing for me that um, managers of, often aren't really prepared for the challenges of what's there. Mm-hmm. So it's no wonder you're at the mercy of your your boss's character flaws because they're struggling as much as you are.
2: Exactly that. Like I've never had training to be a manager right? and I feel very lucky that a lot of people say oh you're a great manager like you're so good at this and it's like okay that's just from just trying what I thought might work but no training and I know very few people who have had training right. for it also a lot of times I think what's again this is maybe specific to journalism is that a lot of times the only progression you can do is into a manager role so you might not want to be a manager or be good at managing people but that's just the logical next step mm. so you get a lot of people pushed into a role that they don't really care about or aren't good at
1: which is uh, only route to earn more money right
2: yeah exactly it will just step up because even now if you go from reporter to editor editor is going to have to start looking after right. a team like that's just inevitable i'm lucky that it turns out i like managing i didn't expect to but i feel like a lot of people must not like it and that's there in the option really
0: that is such a hot topic for me i could talk about this for ages my huge gripe is the progression pathways with manager and managerial responsibilities just suddenly being something you have to take on with very little training if you want to progress Mm -hmm. yeah we see this all the time in that okay so you're really good at this particular thing so you want to get a promotion and now you need to be a leader now you need to manage a team and There's a really interesting piece of research by amazing company more than now that was with, I think, Nationwide, where they were looking into their managers across the board and their assumption was that managers needed more training. Mm. What they actually found was that managers didn't need more training. They just didn't have the time to implement the things that they knew they needed to be doing. So they were, in order to be efficient and to get things done, essentially doing things that they probably knew weren't the best, but they just didn't have time. So their intervention was actually, okay, we need to create more time for managers rather than give them more training, which I thought was particularly interesting, especially given that their hypothesis was managers need more training because what we're hearing in employee surveys is that employees are dissatisfied with their managers. So not necessarily the answer, but I think particularly interesting to explore yeah. when you're seeing that in surveys. To sound like ancient, but when I,
1: when I first got promoted to being a manager, I was so fortunate to be in a company that invested in management training. And the main thing I would say I got from it was we spent ages in these little coaching triangles where specifically I would play someone and I, Matt would be my problem that I've got to deal with, and Ellen, you're watching, and I have to tell Matt what I think he's done wrong, and then someone tells you, and what it did basically, you spent, I just spent hours in these things. What it did is it made you realise telling someone what you think is the problem. Isn't actually as hard as you think it is, but probably you can learn to do it a bit better. Because I think a lot of the problem with managers is that they're so scared of being rejected. They're so scared of these sort of foibles of their own personality that they often caveat things in so many layers. Of praise or or sort of trying to moderate it. There was something I was reading the other day, actually, by Erin Meyer. Do you know her? She's like this woman who's written about, if you work in a multinational company, it's really helpful what she's written. She's written about high context and low context countries. And what she basically says, if if you've got a Dutch manager, your Dutch manager will say, you're terrible at your job and you need to be in on time. And they'll tell you specifically the Mm. issue quite often American style, and, and Britain's more adjacent to that, they'll say, hey, I just want to call out the fact that you're doing an incredible job. And look, you know, if there's one development point, it's stop. don't stop being awesome, but you need to be here a little bit more on time. But also, you're still amazing. And like, it's so layered mm. that people don't realise it. And what I got from my coaching training, my management training, is just telling people in you know, a, well, Way, But telling people what your issue is with them isn't as hard. And it's just all I if all I ever took from that was actually telling people directly. And we often value bosses who tell us things directly. But um, it was just the preparation for that. And I couldn't substitute anything that I've done subsequently for just those hours of just sitting there and then you in the coaching ti- triangle telling me, yeah, Bruce, you, that wasn't very good. And, and just that direct feedback. So that's all I've learned from that, really. I'm well,
2: always- that's interesting because I've always wondered what would it be like to yeah. actually be trained in managing. And I think my fear when I've been put into those roles is always, am I doing something terribly wrong? Am I going to get in trouble? Hmm. Um, and just not really knowing what the role needs, like what it includes, you know, am I going to make everyone hate me also or get in trouble with my bosses? Yeah. So it's really difficult.
0: I'm always scared about mentioning radical candor because I think it mm. can be weaponized. But yeah. To your point, Bruce, is there's kind of that ruinous empathy bucket yeah. that many of us fall into where we dance around it, we don't want to challenge, we're wanting to wrap everything up with being nice because we're scared of, becoming kind of obnoxious or aggressive if we're too direct. And then ruinous empathy, as I mentioned, is where you're kind of uh, dancing around the topic. And then radical candor is meant to be where you are direct, but you care deeply. As I mentioned, I think it can be quite a dangerous thing. They talk about being a jerk while saying, in the spirit of radical candor, doesn't stop you from being a jerk. But it can be a useful guide to think about.
1: Yeah, it's, it comes down to, I think that does, uh, whether you want to be popular or not. And these, these, I mean, let me tell you, I worked with Kim Scott, who wrote that book, mm. and she was not popular. But I don't think she gave one, one if she didn't have
0: a care in the world about being popular. With her t- did her team like her? I don't think many people liked her mm. might have fallen into the obnoxious aggression box yeah
1: thing. I mean look she was like i i very effective at what she did. <laughs> she was like the c e o whisperer, really her job was to but um uh but like I think a lot of managers fall into the idea of I kind of want my team to like me, and like yeah, I think that's probably where her structure actually is quite helpful, good well, look. Thank you so much. We've had a lovely and, and in-depth discussion there. So like I say, we're probably going to try and do the format. It's going to be a discussion, an interview, and we're, we're going to take it as we go. But I'd love feedback. So if you've listened today and enjoyed that, please do get in touch. Um, if you see in the show notes, there'll be a link to all of Ellen's stuff, uh, a link to Matt's company and, and all the stuff he does on LinkedIn. So please do check things out and give us feedback on on what you've thought thanks to both you thank you thanks this has been great great stuff thank you see you next
2: time